The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, happy Tuesday, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast of RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, Director of Editorial Content for Republic EN, and today I'm talking to Terry Gibson and Kirk Mante from the American Water Security Project, a leader in promoting the protection of our nation's drinking waters and water bodies. What does that have to do with climate change, I hear you ask? Frankly, quite a bit. Access to clean, potable water is one of the huge underlying factors at risk due to climate change, both abroad and, unfortunately, here at home. AWSP is keen on ensuring resiliency and modern infrastructure to meet the challenges posed by climate change, such as sea level rise. But I'm going to let our experts explain in greater detail. First, remember that dream I have of 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts? I'm still short. Please drop us a five-star rating and even a one-line review that Price will read on the air. Tell your friends and family members about the podcast. Your support helps sustain our work in the long term. Before turning to my conversation with the American Water Security Project folks, I wanted to highlight, unfortunately, a climate gesture action. At the time of recording, the Trump administration is expected to formally repeal Obama-era limits on methane pollution from newly built oil and gas wells. The rule required companies to install stronger pollution control equipment at any new well or other production, production facilities and to search for and repair leaks. EPA is expected to replace the rules with weaker alternatives. This is one of those odd circumstances where some oil companies align with environmental interests. Oil companies such as BP, Shell, and ExxonMobil see the EPA's plan to peel back methane limits as a threat to their business and future viability of natural gas. I just wanted to share with you a quote from written, written comments filed in November by Joe Ellis, who is BP's head of government affairs. We need to control methane emissions now to maximize the advantages of gas and secure a role for decarbonized gas in the future energy system. Otherwise, we risk losing the confidence of investors, consumers, policymakers, and other stakeholders. Thank you to the Washington Examiner who included that quote in their good reporting on this issue. For those who don't know, Methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and dealing with methane emissions is a key part of making natural gas a cleaner burning fuel than coal for electricity generation. So this is pretty important, and I felt the need to highlight it to you, and certainly I'm no expert. I encourage you to read more on the topic. And now, my conversation with the American Water Security Project. Welcome back, listeners. We're here today with the American Water Security Project, which, as I mentioned in our intro, is focused on wastewater infrastructure. And I know that you're wondering, what does wastewater infrastructure have to do with climate change? And it turns out quite a lot, but I'm going to let our guests explain a little bit more. Terry or Kirk, would you like to talk to our listeners about why, if they care about climate change, they should care about their wastewater infrastructure? Sure, I'll I'll lead on that. Um, So wastewater infrastructure is incredibly vulnerable to flooding, whether it's from sea level rise, more intense hurricanes, wetter hurricanes, or, you know, 
more intense flooding in general. Um, what happens is that um, the pipes are infiltrated. It's called INI, inflow and infiltration. Um, and so it overwhelms the system, and the, the utility operator has no choice but to dump raw or partially treated sewage, typically in a, a poor person's neighborhood or in an estuary or a, a nearby waterway. Basically so, not places where you ever want wastewater. Exactly. And, you, and it's also not waste. Wastewater isn't waste. It's a resource. In most areas in the country here in Florida especially, we're running out of fresh water. And we need to be treating and recycling this, this, quote, wastewater optimally. So at the American Water Security Project, what are you advocating for? Are you looking for federal projects to help upgrade wastewater treatment facilities? Are you, do you work mostly with state and local leaders? So we work at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. Okay. Um, and we work across multiple states. We, I just happen to live in Florida. My friend Kirk here is in Maryland, but has strong ties to Florida. Um, so the other part of the climate issue with wastewater treatment is many areas, especially about a third of us in Florida, rely on septic tanks. And as the groundwater rises and the flooding increases, um, you know, they're just Basically, the, the, the untreated sewage is flowing straight into the ground and surface waters. So it provides a you know, super rich superfood for harmful algal blooms, and it moves dangerous pathogens into our, into our waters. Um, so what we've tried to do on the local level is encourage the um, – really force the utilities to come up with master wastewater improvement plans – that includes septic to sewer conversion systems so we get everybody under a master collection system so that we can treat and recycle optimally. But that involves making sure you have the capacity to do so. And what we found, and you know, from a fiscally conservative standpoint, what's really infuriating is that in most cases in Florida and many places around the country, the people, the, 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 the towns and cities and counties that own the utilities They've routinely raided um, what's called the enterprise funds or the revenues that wastewater utilities generate. And wastewater utilities are cash cows. They are obviously recession-proof. They get paid by the flush. So they haven't reinvested in that. So we passed legislation this year that will force them to come up with master wastewater improvement plans um, that factor in climate change, factor in population growth, and show how they're going to pay for those plans. And then on and the is state, that in Florida or is that nationwide? In Florida. In Florida. In Florida. And uh, um, this legislative session, and we can talk about it further, was just absolutely epic. Um, Republicans really led the, the charge on climate change issues related to water and um, especially on wastewater. And so on the state level, we also worked on appropriations and the, the last, you know, for matching grants and loans programs. And uh, Last year and then this year, we originally got record appropriations for such projects. Um, and what is a record number of appropriations? Like what kind of dollar amount are you talking about? About 500 million. Oh. Um, you know, we doubled it 19. We doubled it this year. Unfortunately, the governor had to go back and veto a lot of that funding because we are about to be short on cash because of the COVID situation. Right. Our state does not have a state income tax and we rely almost entirely on bed taxes from tourism and um, and uh, dock stamp revenues. So we're about to be broke. And I forgive him for that. I understand why he did it. Um, so, and then on the, the state level, we also um, basically, or we created a new pot of money for wastewater infrastructure and other infrastructure improvements related to water. That's a, that makes the, makes the, the, the 
it makes things competitive. In the past, it was all member requests or essentially earmarks. Yeah. And so whoever held the gavel got, you know, for various committees, um, got brought, brought home the bacon. Now it's, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a fair process where, you know, poor counties, you know, get credits and grants, um, in smaller areas. They're on, they're on equal footing with the, the big guys and for the big guys the, and girls, the, the more money they bring in, the higher they are, the more skin they're willing to put in the game. They go to the top of the, uh, to the front of the line. And then on the federal level, we've worked to plus up on the, uh, the budgets and like the EPA's WIFIA program and others. Um, every year for three years, we've managed significant increases that and we have a lot to thank Senator Rubio for there. He really understands this issue. Um, Kirk, you're in Maryland, which is where I live as well. Um, I live in the D.C. part of Maryland, <laughs> but I know that we get these heavy rains in this region. In fact, we're expecting That's some right. today as on recording day. And I have seen the footage of Ellicott City, which is a town in Maryland, if you are unfamiliar listeners. And I swear they get a, you know, 5,000 year flood every couple of years and you can see the water rushing down the streets and cars floating. It's really, really scary. So I wonder what kind, an event like that, what does that do to a water treatment facility? Well, that's a great question. Um, in theory, and really in, in the best design and construction practices of, of water uh, infrastructure, uh, the runoff, the, what we call stormwater, is a totally separate system from a wastewater system. Okay. Um, and so, therefore, the more it rains, you still have co- ample capacity within the stormwater system to actually move the water that wasn't infiltrated by stormwater practices such to the point that they, to the extent that they exist. Um, and wastewater is kind of left alone and you should have normal levels of that. But there's a couple of things that um, have interfered with that. One is that many cities in the United States, including DC, including Baltimore, um, cities out West as well, um, have ha- had this kind of history during the early 20th century and, and back into the 19th century of having what are called combined sewer overflows. And that's when essentially the um, uh, the stormwater system gets overwhelmed. It starts to dump um, intentionally volume into the wastewater system, which then essentially rushes the volume through the, the wastewater treatment plants until they essentially have to pull all the gates and untreated or less than fully treated waste goes into our waterways. And that's um, that's been illegal for a long time. And um, most of our cities in the Chesapeake Bay, Norfolk, uh, Baltimore, D.C. have been working really hard to separate those systems and make them uh, keep them away from each other. But that's um, that, that's a that's a huge problem as we continue to experience uh, more frequent extreme storms. Like you said, the multiple 500 once every 500 year storms. In, there's three of them in a five year period. Um, you just um, can't manage that uh, accidentally. It's got to be managed very, very carefully, and there's got to be a good system in place. And um, the Chesapeake Bay has got this, you know, fantastic uh, system uh, through the, the the Bay TMDL. This kind of uh, very conservative, cooperative federalism to clean up the bay, and uh, it's a great model for Florida. It's a great model. Uh, I think, in my opinion, for uh, a lot of the other watersheds of the country, and that you have the federal government set up broad guidelines for compliance 
and that includes some carrots and includes some sticks. And then you leave it to the states who then leave it to the local jurisdictions to figure out exactly how they will comply with these broad guidelines. And there's milestones and check-ins and all kinds of other stuff. But we see it, you know, it, it leads to, you know, some uh, accountable home rule. It leads to um, fewer problems like Terry described of, well, we needed a $100 million sewer plant, but we decided to put, you know, AstroTurf uh, fields in instead, uh, which is something that's happened in Florida. Uh, and then, yeah, you have a hurricane. Uh, and then everybody wants to know why they can't get in the water for six months and why all the fish died. And it's like, well, you, you can go play soccer, I guess, you know. Okay. Um, so uh, that's uh, these things are, in fact, very much tied together. And I think that overall what this issue just points to is that we do have um, one of our big weaknesses, I think, in the U.S. is a crumbling infrastructure. And it um, that pertains to wastewater treatment. It pertains to our um, highways, bridges, and they're not things that are like fun and sexy to put your money into, right? Like let's have an AstroTurf field. That sounds fun. Nobody wants to spend the money on the things that are really going to, um, you know, it's sort of like with home improvement. I've been doing a lot of things on my house. And I remember a few years ago, I had to have a tree taken down because it had died and it was a big tree. And if it fell, it was actually going to fall on my neighbor's house. And I thought, well, I'm going to be a good neighbor and have the tree taken down and for the amount of money it cost me, I thought, gosh, you know, the things that I could have done in my house that I could have right. appreciated on a daily basis, but I had to take the tree down. That was like, right. that's the way I see infrastructure in this in this country. And especially as somebody who worked on it for um, many years when I was on the Hill. And I think, you know, you hear lawmakers, at least I do hear um, at the federal level saying you know, maybe they're not all the way there on climate change or they're still kind of hedging a little bit on climate change. It's always been changing, you know, some of the excuses that we hear, but they say, oh, but I want clean water. I love clean water. And I just think you can't have that clean water today without, you cannot have a clean water discussion independent of a climate discussion. That's right. And you couldn't have said it better, Chelsea. Um, we're having this conversation with Congressman Mass, Senator Rubio, right now. And the conversation boils down to, especially in these times with the COVID crisis, building and rebuilding equity and equitability into our communities instead of printing money and handing it out. You know, if we're going to increase the national debt, we need to put it in things that that improve our communities and increase their values. They're demonstrable, change. demonstrable investments. That's right. Mm-hmm. I can show you study after study that shows that property values go up when you invest in infrastructure. Um, so this is what um, you know our legislature tried to do this year. And I also wanted to point out that um, you know the, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis just released their 500-page report. And if you read what's called the Clean Waterways Act that we passed in the Tallahassee, in Tallahassee this year in state legislature, side by side with the water infrastructure um, uh, section in the in the Select Committee's report. They are very similar, and yes, we had a lot to do with those similarities. We, we pointed them out. But what's interesting to me is the government affairs director, as, you know, as, a, as a you know political op- operative, is that okay? So you've got the overwhelmingly Republican Florida legislature passing two bills, water bills that explicitly and implicitly recognize climate change and the impacts on water. They both passed unanimously with ample input from the, the, the Democratic leadership. And then you've got the select committee that is a majority Democrat. 
but from 11 diverse states, and I think there were 15 members off the top of my head in there, yes. and they arrived at the very same conclusions, and we helped lead them there. Yeah. But it was it's it's a point of uh, hope, you know. It's a um, it, it's a it's a point of light anyway for us that there's at least an issue agreement on here, and, and, they, and there's some safe space to talk about climate change in the context of water infrastructure as well as should be. RepublicEN.org is the leading voice for climate action, and we want to hear from you. Now, let's continue with this week's episode. Yeah, and I think that part of what is important in the talk about climate change in the march toward action, especially when you're bringing along, um, we learned a new word on a recent podcast um, that we recorded with uh, Lindsay Linsky, she calls people that are not all there on climate yet eco-hesitant. And I really <sighs> like that term because it it it's better than denier because so many, I, I just feel like the discourse has changed. It used to be that you had people say, no, it's not happening. And then the excuse became, oh, the climate's always been changing. And oh, yes, the climate's changing, but we don't know what percent is human caused. And so you've just when you've worked on an issue like climate change, as long as I have, you've seen, you know, the excuses just evolve over time, which is really interesting. And so I, I do like eco-hesitant as a term, but, you know, nobody's going to say, I hate clean water. I hate clean air. I hate the, you know, you don't really see people saying dump that on the, in the forest. You know, they don't want to destroy the environment. They just aren't connecting all the dots, I guess I would say. And and so it is a good way, you know, when you do, even though I just said you can't have the conversation about clean water without having a conversation about climate change, clean water can be a, conver- a way to have that conversation about climate change in terms that are familiar and feel safe. That's right. I, th- I think you're right. And that's the, uh, I think one of the key things is kind of proximity to the impacts of these types of problems. And you know, when it's a Miami problem and you're a senator from Nebraska, that's a challenge. But when it's a Nebraska problem and there's no water and there's no rain and there's no groundwater uh, and you're a senator from New Jersey, it's also, you know, a little remote. Uh, one of the things that I tend to go back through and in, in, in my day job with Green Trust Alliance, we work with large fe- federal facilities on uh, infrastructure resilience and wetland mitigation and stormwater and all that kind of stuff is we go back to actually President Bush commissioned a major study with uh, senior advisors to the Defense Department in 2006. And, you know, the findings of those uh, men and women were pretty clear. And it was like, you know, the, the nation's military installations have a very specific mission. If the tide comes up too high 10 days a year, um, it doesn't really matter if that's anthropogenic or if it's natural or it the the impact it has is direct because it means that the bombers can't launch. Mm-hmm. If the bombers can't launch and the Air Force installation cannot succeed in its mission 10 days a year, that's a substantial problem. And so I think what we're starting to see is government leaders, particularly, you know, on on the right, starting to come around to what are the local impacts of this and, uh, you know, and getting past this ideological discussion of do we like it, who's to blame, who's going to pay for it, because when you have uh, locally driven impacts, which is certainly what uh, freshwater availability, wastewater pollution, uh, septic pollution, all those things are very locally driven pollution, um, 
you know, that's when you start to see solutions start to bubble up. Like, okay, well, how, how are we going to do this and how quickly can we do it? And you know, what are some tools for us? And that's, and you know, and again, that's in a cooperative federalist setup where the state and the federal government can get involved. or like, here's what we'd like you to do in general. Here are some funding options. Here are the penalties for not doing it, you know, um, and really putting a system together that lets local leaders be successful and, and to some extent stay out of the political fray with, you know, is this caving to the left or is this, uh, you know, at some point it's a good infrastructure investment, you know, uh, and if it's a good infrastructure investment and it will last, you know, the old infrastructure, old sewer pipes and stuff, uh, many of which in many cities are 100 years old, were designed to last 20 to 30 years. Um, we're seeing more and more of this stuff be designed and constructed to last 30 to 100 years or 50 to 200 years. And that's, and that's, this is really the kind of, again, is we're leveraging not only our current tax dollars, but future tax dollars. Um, that's really the, what we've got to be looking at is making smart long-term investments in, in actual projects that, that make a difference in, uh, local places. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said about local impacts versus, you know, the senator from Nebraska maybe not caring about what's happening in Florida. And, and that just reminded me of when I was on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee in the 90, late 90s, and we were working on the Everglades restoration project. So I spent a lot of time in Florida working on um, trying to get that federal bill passed, which we did in mm -hmm. 2000. It's somewhere behind me. Um, and <laughs> um, well, my boss was from New Hampshire, as I mentioned earlier, and I remember we were in Naples for this field hearing, this epic field hearing that launched our our all of our um, getting the testimony and and writing the bill. And he decided he was going to call the Everglades, not Florida's Everglades, but America's Everglades, because mm -hmm. it was a national treasure and it belonged to everybody and every American who comes to Florida should go see it. And and I sort of wonder whether that stuck. I mean, you guys can tell me I probably haven't been to Florida in a while. Um, That's so I've, I've worked on the Everglades Restoration literally since the seventh grade. I grew up in them. I actually <laughs> have a four-year-old son in them this weekend. Um, we shot a feral hog for dinner. This weekend, and he caught he caught a couple of little sunfish in the in a in a little in a cypress pond there, and it was a great weekend. But um, you know, I grew up you know the son and daughter. My sister and I were the son and daughter of, of two avid fly fishermen and hunters, and we and you were from the Everglades, you know, originally. My family's been here a long time, and um, you know, it was I got into advocacy because I saw that what was happening to the Everglades. I mean, the places of my. The, dreams for hunting and fishing from just being completely destroyed. And so um, I did a report in seventh grade um, and I, suddenly I was like on the front page of the Palm Beach Post, like the, the kid. And the reason why we're doing this is for our, for our youth and all that. And I've never been able to get out of my system as slow as it's marched and, and as frustrating as it is. Um, it, we, when we worked in the American War Security Project, worked very hard on that this past two years in the Florida legislature. We got record funding, $350 million a year for Everly's restorations, for projects that will make a big difference in terms of getting the water right, in terms of timing and delivery and quality and all that. Barry, so, did our paths cross in the late 90s, early 2000s? At that point, um, teaching high school and working for Surfer Magazine and traveling about 40 weeks out of the year. Okay, um, so maybe so not. I, 
<laughs> I've worked, I went to a lot of water management district meetings mm-hmm. locally and all I ever wanted to do is be, get paid to fish and hunt and surf and dive. And so I, I went to work for, um, you know, surfer magazine, saltwater fly fishing, outdoor life, forest sportsman. I worked for a bunch of them. And then those industries pretty much disappeared. The, the publishing industry there went during the recession. And I was really kind of ready just to do nothing but the policy stuff because it was just all going to hell in a handbasket. And, um, and largely because of climate change. Per the Everglades and per the select committee's report and per what the Florida legislature did this year, they are making an investment in, 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 our, in our natural capital. I mean, that's the way to look at that. You know, we tend to think that only things that have concrete attached to them are, are infrastructure. Well, let me tell you, nobody in Naples th- fails to recognize that the Everglades and the coral reef are, um, are, are natural capital because if Irma had not come across the, them, Hurricane Irma, Naples and much of Southwest Florida would cease to exist. Oh, I heard, I learned a great term back during Katrina um, that wetlands provide speed bumps for hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and coral reefs provide walls mm-hmm. for storm surge and and all that. So um, it's really important that we you know as we think about infrastructure, we we change our thinking about it. You know, in terms of wastewater isn't waste and. Natural resources are contain natural capital. I mean, they protect us. They they support our fisheries. You know, this is the fishing capital of the world. It's our largest economic driver. And these fisheries are in trouble. I'm just really proud of those two bodies, the Select Committee and the Florida Legislature. And, and for I what think it's really doing. interesting that you know the Florida Legislature, Demo- uh, Republican controlled, and as you highlighted earlier, the Select Committee in the House, um, the Democrats are in charge, and that was the Democrats' report. And so the fact that this Republican-led Florida state legislature um, stuff made it into the Democrat-led report is a good sign. That gives me hope that we're not as far apart as we think when we get beyond just the political R-D divide. And I also just want to say for anyone who's listening who's young and deciding what they want to do with their lives or maybe you're looking for your second career – do what Terry did. Find out what you like to do and then figure out what you're, you know, how you're going to do it so that you can always be doing your passion and call it work. Then it doesn't even really feel like work. No, Kirk and I have fun every day, well, despite <laughs> all the frustrations. We do. We like what we do. Um, but, uh, you know, it's for how we fund this stuff. I mean, I think we should get into that. And we've been very outspoken about the need for a price on carbon. And then, you know, and, we, and we'd like that to be very carefully thought out, so that you know, a coal-fired power plant isn't left in some poor, poor neighborhood, while Beverly Hills enjoys solar panels. That you know, right. that's not fair. You know, we need to think through those things. And you know, I I, I, I like uh, Congressman Inglis's approach too, where you know the revenues come dr- directly back to at least some of them directly back to the to the um, to the taxpayer. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, but we do think that a lot of it needs to go to infrastructure too. Yeah. Because fr- frankly, these these cha- even if there weren't bad actors and actresses and it, that, running these utilities that were raiding their enterprise funds, in many places the costs of these upgrades are just staggering. Yeah. I yep. mean, the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that for to get for Florida just to get where it needs to be with its existing population, and we are adding about three hundred thousand people a year. Um, and never mind climate change, it will cost eighteen point five billion. Wow. And our yeah, and our back of the and more than back of the envelope math is more, more like three times that. That's that's accurate. Yep. So, so we, we we don't you know we've I mean throughout history history is replete with with examples of where um, societies collapsed because they didn't treat their sewage. 
Yeah. I mean, we've, we've known this since the Romans. Right. right? <laughs> this is not early. new information. <laughs> this is not new information. Yeah. And so we, we have to do this. And to your point earlier, um, you know, it will create jobs. Well, I work on, as on the weekends as a, as a, as a hunting guy that, that equip, the Quail Hunting Florida Ranch. And the fellow that owns it owns one of the biggest um, water infrastructure construction companies there. And I've gotten to know his, his, you know, his team really well. And they're, we're so different. And it reminded me of something I learned when I was a teacher. There's different kinds of intelligence. I mean, you, you don't ever want to see a power tool wrench in my hand. It's scary. I, I, can't, I can't even think about it. I can't even see how it fits. But, you know, if it has to do with language, I do. Or a dog or teaches somebody to fly fish, I can. So to talk to these guys, they have this, this, this um, sort of patriotic – well, it is. It's like this patriotic sense about their jobs and workman's pride. They come to me and they have videos they've shown of, of, of pipes crumbling in their hands, sewage pipes crumbling in their hands. And they're frustrated that there's not that there's oftentimes the funding is only there to do a patch job. That's right. You yeah. know, and they they want to do the job right the first time every time. Yeah. And and they're in you know in, in, in a lot of these guys. I mean, fortunately, because of the virus, it, well, that's the wrong way to say anything about the virus. But fortunately for them, in spite of the virus, they are still working because there's less traffic on the roads and the utilities are keeping them busy. Right. Um, so they're not bored, but. You know, this has been emotionally hard on anybody, and I can't imagine not having a job right now. Yeah. And uh, and, and do, building this infrastructure will put a lot of people back to work and doing things that they're proud about, proud of, and it'll rebuild our economy better, safer, and fairer. And that's what we need. I want to thank both of you for joining us today and talking about these important issues. They really just span so much, right? You, you we talked about the environment and fishing and hunting and and preservation of the Everglades and infrastructure and jobs. And it's, you know, it just really shows how interconnected everything that we do is. And um, so the way that climate change touches every aspect of our lives really just is made more clear to me every day. And I work on this for a living. (laughs) So I thank you for your insight and sharing. And I hope we can have some future conversations. Absolutely. And now, our executive director, Bob Inglis, with an idea worth sharing. I was meeting with the senator's staff. The senator is one of the main opponents of climate action. So I asked his staff, when his grandchildren come home? And they interrupted me. They said, oh, he's had the conversation with his grandchildren. What became clear to me was that if that senator is ever to be reached, it's going to be through those grandchildren. And so, you know, maybe it's the children and the grandchildren of conservatives that will convince them to take action. Maybe it's an idea that we're sharing. Well, Price, I just realized this was our 10th episode. Was. It feels like it was uh, honestly just yesterday that we said, set sail, we have liftoff. And we, we have rolled along, and you've done a fantastic job. At, you know, 10 episodes, I told you, once you kind of got, you know, in the saddle, you're just going to roll, and it's going to be second nature. And so that's really what it's uh, what it's been like, at least for me, on this side, producing and, and listening to you and the great interviews and conversations you've had. Um, just a job well done. Well, thanks. You know, one thing I was thinking the other day is that to a lot of people, unless you have a podcast – you might not realize all the work that goes into it. It may just seem like this easy thing that we get folks we know or want to know on the phone and have a little conversation. But 
there is a lot of work. I mean, aside from identifying the guests who we want, and we've done that as a team with everyone suggesting um, various options, then you have to reach out with that person and you have to find time in the schedule. And then the preparation that I do on my end, making sure that I know who the person is and where they're coming from and have you know, you know that I don't like to make it more like a Q&A. I don't want it to sound like an interview. I want it to be a conversation. And But toward that end, I usually have some prompts that I make up in case the conversation stalls or if I want to direct the conversation in a certain way. And so all that obviously takes work. And then you take it all and you make it magical. So there's just a lot of time and effort that goes into it. So it's really satisfying to now have 10 episodes under our belt and i can't wait for the next 10 me either and if you are listeners out there right now listening and appreciate you downloading subscribing listening if you haven't done so please go do that on your favorite podcast app but if you've got a guest idea somebody you would like to hear drop us a line let us know we are very easy to find at republican Dot org. Just uh, shoot us a note and let us know if you've got somebody, whether it's in your organization, a friend, uh, an interview that you think would be really good from somebody from a, a national perspective. Just please let us know. Um, and speaking of inter- interviews, Terry Gibson and, and Kirk Mante from the American Water Security Project, appreciate them joining us for this episode. And, you know, our good friend, uh, Dr. Brandon Schuler, for, for helping set that up, the executive director of the American Water Security Project, where you can find out a lot more about them at awsproject.org. And, you know, Price, I'm actually a secret water infrastructure nerd because when I was on the Hill, I worked with um, on the Water Resources Development Act, the WERDA bill, which is a bill that Congress is supposed to pass every two years to authorize um, the non-military, non-defense projects for the Army Corps of Engineers and I started working on the first, my first word of bill back in 1998. We did not get a bill done. We did it in 99. And then we did another one in 2000 because we had to play catch up. The 99 bill was really the 98 bill. And then the process stalled. And that was a weird dynamic where the word of bill was always House versus Senate rather than Democrat versus Republican. And so they didn't get one in 2002 or 2004 or 2006. And I went back to the Hill in 2007 and my office said, well, obviously you have to be on, you know, you have to do the word of bill and the word of bill was in conference and we got a bill. So then everyone said, oh, you must be the magic to getting a word of bill done. So I um, later, actually it was before I went back to the Hill, worked on an amendment that would require the Army Corps to consider climate change in its project um, compilations, its EIS reviews and stuff. So, you know, it is a really important part of the climate change dynamic. And obviously, we all take for granted turning on our faucet and getting that clean water. And so the work that they're doing is really important. And, you know, it's not always the sexiest work, (laughs) but um, very important. Well, I think it's exactly as you said. It's a lot of times that we we you know, most people just you don't realize you kind of take for granted turning on the sink or the shower or um, you know brushing your teeth at night and, and having clean water. And it's I think it's just something that honestly, really, in a lot of ways, is taken for granted. And you know the the climate aspect too is is another part that you just don't think of and how interrelated uh, water quality is with climate change. And so I thought. Uh, 
it was really great conversation and, and Terry helping, you know, bring some of that to, to life and to attention, you know, in talking with you about it. It wasn't, he's such a passionate outdoorsman too. So he really brings that perspective and, um, yeah, I really enjoyed kind of digging back into that world. It had been a while since I had really thought about water infrastructure. Yeah, I think uh, we need to go down and have a staff retreat in Florida when we get on the other side of this pandemic. I'd love for uh, Terry to take us all on a, a tour of the Everglades, but also to give us some surf lessons because it's something I've watched people do forever, and I just don't have the uh, – I just don't I've have it to get up. I've always wanted to learn how to surf. I've been to <laughs> Hawaii twice. I go to California. You know, uh, in the old pre-COVID days, I would go to California a couple times a year, and I've never learned how to surf. So it's I'm with you. <laughs> it's got to be easier than golf. I don't, Terry, close your ears if uh, if you disagree, but – um, it has to be easier than golf. It but, has to be easier than golf. I'm with you. <laughs> all right. Something that wasn't easy, just real quick before we get out of here, and I want to thank um, our new members here in just a second, but how did you survive? Uh, new experience for you over the weekend uh, saying <sighs> goodbye, or last weekend, I should say, yeah. to your firstborn heading off to college. I know it was yeah. difficult. How'd you do it? I mean, Friday was actually the day before he left, and that was our day. We said goodbye because he was leaving really early Saturday morning with his dad, and so dropping him off at his dad's house you know, we, I mean, I was a puddle of tears and he cried a little bit, but I think he was crying because he saw I was crying. And then I came home and just cried the rest of the night. And then I can kind I, I can sort of pretend like he's just at work or he's at his dad's, but I will say the mornings are hard because he is a morning person like I am. And so I miss having him, you know, we usually just automatically wake up within five minutes of each other, which is very strange. And like that, I kind of miss like, oh, he's yeah. not down having a cup of coffee with me. Um, but, you know, I think every day it just gets a little easier. And I'm still I'm so excited for him. Right. I just have to channel that and not make it about me. <laughs> what were the special meals? Because I know you had some price, some special last, you know, meals. We that did, his favorites. Yeah. We didn't get to do what he really like his absolute favorite is chicken pot pie. And unfortunately, the days leading into his departure were very, very warm. And the idea of turning my oven on to 450 degrees was just not something I wanted to do. But we had um, pesto is one of his favorites, especially in the summer. And we had fresh basil in our garden. So we made a bunch of pesto dishes and... Um, oh geez, now I'm forgetting. Oh, he really likes, and I know it's summer, so it seems counterintuitive, but he loves chicken soup and I make it from scratch. So we had that and we were supposed to have sushi on his last night and the restaurant screwed up our order and we couldn't get it. So he was so cute. He's like, we'll just have leftovers, mom. Your food is always really good. So, oh. yeah, you know, pesto, another change of subject real quick. Pesto is something that uh, my wife has introduced me to in the last, you know, year or so, but more so in the last couple months with the pandemic and stuff. And her meals have been out of the off the charts. My wife, Rebecca, has just killed it. But pesto, homemade little pizzas, whether you do it on English muffins, whether you do it on a little... Um, like a little flatbread, you can almost do bites that way. Um, you can take these, they're real healthy. I'm trying to remember what you call them. Um, like a little circular thing. You get them, they're, they're really healthy, low cal. 
but you can I love the pesto putting that down almost as the sauce and then having some fresh uh, cut tomatoes and then goat cheese oh my goodness those little for mini- sure oh yeah. I am all about some pesto right about now Chels we get this fresh sourdough bread delivered from a local bakery and I love taking a little bit of that mm-hmm. and putting it um mm. you know toasting it up and smearing a little pesto on and like you said mm. some goat cheese and some little um, microgreens. Mm. Oh, delicious. And if anyone wants my pesto recipe, it's so easy. Mm. Hit me up. I'm happy to share it. And I love to get recipes from other people. So share your, you know, this is like the bountiful time of year, right? It's summer and there's zucchini and just all sorts of great vegetables. And I'm always looking for new inspo. All right, uh, inspiration, something we got this week. Shout out to a couple new members here, Chelsea. Dina R. from Texas, Seth M. in Ohio, Timothy S. in New York, Ben G. in Wisconsin, Jessica F. in Colorado. Also a big thank you to the Rotary Club of Palm Coast, Florida, and President Dina McKinley. Uh, for having Bob talk with their club last week. Uh, great conversation with them, and uh, hope to uh, to speak to some other uh, Rotary clubs there in the state of Florida. But also, as is just a uh, programming note, if you have got, um, if your organization would ever be interested in having Bob or a member of our team speak, uh, obviously right now we are we are not on the road due to everything that's certainly going on and everybody's cognizant of, we will get back on the road hopefully sooner than later. But if you would like to have Bob or somebody from our team speak to your organization, we can do that and set that up uh, virtually via Zoom, uh, whatever technology is best for you and your organization. Uh, but drop us a line, too. You can let me know. Uh, just go to Republican.org and, and drop me a line specifically as I handle the events and stuff uh, for our team. So, Chelsea, next week, what do we have? We have our very own Ed Maybach joining us next week. So for those who don't know, he's not exactly a household name yet, (laughs) but the George Mason University Climate Change Communications Program does amazing polling with their partners over at the Yale Program for Climate Change Communications. And they have been constantly monitoring attitudes about climate change. They have polls that compare climate change and COVID. And so we're just going to hear kind of the latest and greatest of what they're seeing, um, the thoughts, the evolution of thoughts on climate change. And I believe they were the ones that had a recent poll that showed that there was no drop in climate change as a concern since COVID, which some I know we always worry that one big issue is going to um, displace this other really important issue. But as it turns out, we can worry about more than one thing at a time, Price. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from Ed and knowing the late, hearing the latest about what they're up to. Yeah, Ed's a great host and, and partner for us at, at George Mason and the Center for Climate Change Communication. So really lucky to have Ed on and, and to come and spread and talk about some latest numbers and trends and data that they have collected. So excited to have Ed Maybach next week and excited in what will be episode 11, Chelsea. Hope everybody again, subscribe, download, listen. Thanks for everybody that has taken the time to listen to the first 10 installments that we've had. we got a lot more coming up as we close out the summer and hopefully get ready for what will be a much cooler fall. I am ready for it. I'm ready for next week, Chelsea. I am ready for it, too. But don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, I'm still seeking those 100 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So 
if that is your platform on which you listen to us, please just, it, uh, it's a click. You just have to tap your finger on the fi- on all five stars and that will make me happy. Takes no time at all. Until then, we will see you next week, Chelsea. That's right. See you then, Christ. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader.